Welcome to Ride the Learning Curve podcast. Your host is Subramani, your producer, Spruce Up. Our guest today is Deborah Wick, who runs the Rare Ability Foundation in the United States. Deborah champions the causes of rare diseases, getting attention and care for those who suffer from such conditions. She fights pain, but more than that, she fights prejudices faced by people with disability. Deborah Wick, she's joining us from the beautiful city in California. Talk about your city first, Deborah. I am in the uh, San Diego County in the Southern, South, Southern California. About to say sunny because it is sunny right now. It's not always sunny, but it is a sunny majority of the time. So it is very beautiful, perfect climate down here for me anyway, with a multiple, as we were talking about before with pain management, part of it is living in a location uh, geographically, weather-wise that is more conducive for my body than other areas such as really high humid and pressure changes and so forth. So this is definitely one of the best climates for me to live in, as well as locations for my medical care. Let's talk about pain management. Um, obviously, that must have come from your disability and, the, and, and, and whatever that you're experiencing. So what have you learned? What do you teach? And how you think people should manage pain in case they, they have the misfortune of having pain? Thank you so much for asking that. Uh, for those that don't know, I have several different types of rare diseases and multiple, multiple invisible disorders that cause severe chronic pain throughout my entire body, throughout almost all my joints, as well as the vast majority of muscles and many of my nerves. Uh, my pain journey started at the early age of 13. And I had injuries prior to that, but nothing of sig- severe significance. I destroyed both of my knees in sports in seventh grade, and I was on crutches from the day forward. And that soon began a long journey of this, what I like to call my pain journey discovery is taking many years, I would say decades to try to get the right balance between Eastern and Western medicine to, and different types of techniques of alternative and holistic techniques as well to create a balance for myself. The first thing I will say is don't allow the pain to control you uh, for you to take charge of your pain management. This means taking an active role in how you manage your pain from your mindset to your physical activities, to your um, food intake, which I'm still working on that one, uh, to the other types of modalities. And yes, I use an array of pharmacological remedies, as well as I use natural homeopathic remedies, as well as increasing and adding in my mindfulness practice, my breath work, my mindset, and of course, living my life in the terms of focusing on the gratitude and being thankful for what I do have. First thing I tell people is have a toolbox. When we talk about pain, what, what is the level of pain that, uh, that, that we're talking about? What, what, what is it like? to have pain, uh, the kind of proportion of pain that you have? It's very relative. It's very hard to explain because I have different kinds of pain. There's the long-term weather achy 
pain, which is a very horrible, obnoxious pain in the back of my joints. There's my acute pain from every time I sublux or dislocate something to my surgeries. And then there's, you know, the, it is relative for me, my pain scale at my 10 is when I can't get out of bed, when I can't stop vomiting from the pain. And when I'm curled up in a ball in just excruciating inability to move. My normal pain on my scale is about a six, seven as my, my average. I right. don't normally lower than that. When someone like me, for example, I have pain, uh, you know, because of a, you know, bad tooth or, uh, or maybe a little twist of a muscle. And uh, the immediate sensation is that I wish the pain to go. I wish the pain to go and it doesn't go. It's there. It's right, right. there. <laughs> and, and maybe it, it kind of intensifies every time I wish it go. It intensifies. So what do you talk, when you talk about mindfulness, when you talk about different practices, I just want to focus more on mindfulness because, you know, uh, is, that, is that a way you can sort of keep the pain at bay? I usually can keep it at bay when it's in the six, seven range. I can still function. Uh, people ask that ultimately, how do you smile when you're in pain? Reality is, is I don't know what else to do but smile, but I also can function at that six, seven and a lot of it has to do with that notion of accepting the pain for what it is. It's pain, recognizing it, saying the like, same way you do in any kind of mindfulness practice, you recognize emotions that do support you and don't hold weight, don't hold value for you. You recognize it and you move forward. I see my pain as a friendly monster. Friendly <laughs> monster. <laughs> okay. In my favorite color, in my purple color band. No, uh, it's, it's about recognizing it and moving forward. Cause if this is something that I found in my own personal journey in terms of the meditation, in terms of mindfulness practice is if I focus and dwell on the negative element of it, I'm more, I'm actually giving it fuel. It's almost like, you know, giving fuel to a fire. If you're focusing in on it, it, it to me, it elevates the pain versus allowing me to keep busy and focus on something that I can do and appreciate it completely changes how my body reacts. When did you start feeling this pain? When was it sort of became this intense? Like, uh, was it uh, early in your life or mm -hmm. later adolescence or later? Um, so I actually was having really, really severe pain in high school. And in college, I was diagnosed with uh, what was then referred to as RSD, reflexive sympathetic dystrophy, and now is referred to as chronic CRPS chronic regional pain syndrome. And that was probably the most painful time because with those who don't know with region CRPS, your body feels like it's on fire. Uh, those, especially those areas that are affected nerves can take any sensation as pain. And that I remembered making a tent of a blanket over my legs. I just couldn't even have the blanket over my legs. By the way, in New York, that's not a fun thing because it gets really cold. I know I was on medication much earlier than that. I know I had surgeries much earlier than that, but that is probably the, I was about 18 and that memory is very much etched in my brain and as well with the test for getting diagnosed with that disorder as well, because that was not a fun test either. Do you teach this formally? I mean, yes. kind of a pain management program of some kind. So I have been hosting rooms on this on 
clubhouse on a, on a regular basis. We've had made pain management workshops as well as advocacy discussion workshops. I have also been discussing this on, on several podcasts and I am putting together this as another element of workshops people can get through my company, Rareability. And this way, pain management is an issue that affects people of every age, every sort, every element in our society, people are facing pain, whether you're an athlete, whether you're able-bodied, whether you're disabled, right? It doesn't matter whether it's a hurt ankle, twisted ankle, or whether it's something that you're recovering from surgery. Right. We're all going through those challenges, those emotions, those loss of abilities, and that fear of is this permanent and no one of, one of the things i'll tell you what happens you know because of fear of pain a lot of people postpone their surgery they yeah. they don't want to go through uh, for example the pain or the after effects of a hernia surgery for example it's very simple but but postponing it is only going to complicate the the <laughs> thing and they don't they don't do it because they are afraid of pain so maybe for them i think what you're doing will be uh, extremely useful in terms of uh, coming to terms with or what 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 they have to go through, but what do you think about having a counselor or or someone to talk about pain management before and after a surgery? Do you think it's something that people should have as part of the medical setup universally? So I do think that there should be a check in with people. They don't want anything to impede people's medical care. Uh, I know in the United States, a lot of uh, pain clinics nowadays, any type of pain treatment, you usually go through at least an intake with a counselor to see how you're managing things. And there is a reason behind it, right? It's not to in any way to blame a person for having chronic pain because it's not a psychological reason. You know, if you have a physical reason, you have a physical reason, you have a psychological reason, you have a psychological reason, or there's a combination thereof. But when you have pain, there is a loss that does occur. There is a loss of action or loss of ability. And there is going to be moments of not feeling great about it. Learning coping skills is I think an essential element to managing chronic pain. I think people should be given the skills to learn how to meditate, how to do breath work and embracing gratitude. Basically the idea is to enable programs and activities that help us change our mindset from what was me to what can I learn from this? And what can I teach from this experience? And I, I get it when you're in the midst of it, when you're in the height of that experience, sometimes it's really hard to see what that silver lining is. Right. But that, that's when it's time to take that time to step back and say, okay, I can't see that big picture, but what can I appreciate in this particular moment in time? It doesn't always work, but I can tell you it definitely helps, especially with that acute pain. Um, and muscular tension as well. So that's something that I found to be very useful. So you also talk uh, or advocate about rare diseases and uh, probably the other term for that is orphan diseases. Can you talk about uh, how you got involved in uh, work around rare diseases? Sure. So I have uh, multiple rare diseases, one of which is called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. That's E-H-L-E-R-S. Danlos, D-A-N-L-O-S. And that's a rare disease. It's a spectrum disorder. There's over 14 different types, but in the quick sum of it, it's a muscular disorder, or sorry, connective tissue disorder. And once the collagen stretches, it cannot retighten 
causing my particular, in my case, my muscles are a spasm, trying to hold together all of my joints that are subluxing. It's also internal organs are affected and a multitude of secondary comorbidities to that one. Um, dysautonomia, which is a major disorder for me, but it's not a rare disease. And then myasthenia gravis, which is M-Y-S-T-H-E-N-I-A, gravis, G-R-A-V-I-S. It's a neuromuscular autoimmune disease where the body attacks receptors from the brains to the muscles. And I became involved in the rare disease community to help, initially it was to learn more about my diseases. And I realized I was always going to career in politics and I had already done a good deal of legislative work. Mm. I soon realized all the work that was being done in the rare disease realm. And I started advocating with the rare disease community over five years ago. Okay. And, and what is the progress that, uh, that you've, you've achieved? I mean, is there awareness, support, political will to, to sort of take up the cause of rare diseases in the United States? And uh, probably you're also networked with people from other countries. So you can talk about that experience also. So that's uh, in terms of working with other countries, that's been a more recent experience for me. Uh, this past year, I've been a couple international panels for discussion with rare diseases. I've had discussion, I've had a conference for rare diseases. Um, it was an international conference for rare diseases this year. I've actually been on two, two conferences for that, as well as Disability Awareness Summit with you last two, two weeks ago. Yeah. And my first experience meeting people internationally with rare diseases was actually at a global genes conference two years ago at the Patient Summit in San Diego is when I met with people from actually India. And mm-hmm. when I learned the different experiences or it was very, I thought it was different in the United States between the different regions and geographical and economic groups. I was really surprised to see and hear the differences between the United States and other countries. And in terms of legislation, I think one of the best experiences I had is I've met with legislators. I've met with legislative aides, but my former, my former town where I lived in the, in the Bay Area one of the congressional representatives spent over an hour with me and my younger son and listened to my story, listened to my rare disease experience, listened to what I was advocating for in the rare, with the rare disease community and with the Christopher and Dana Reeves Foundation. And they ended up, not only as they wrote a letter of intent supporting what I asked for, but also wrote me a thank you note to tell me which legislation they were going to be supporting. Cool. And that was great to see that different. I mean, that was, you know, that was pretty awesome. I'm not going to lie. That was pretty awesome. Absolutely. I've also, <laughs> I have, re, you know, pre-COVID and actually during COVID in my previous town, Morgan Hill, I was able to get uh, Dysonomia International and Ellers Downloads Awareness Month, both recognized in their respective months as well. Proclamations for those recognitions. So. Absolutely. That's, that's wonderful. And I wish it happens in other countries also, because there, there are, there are places where uh, the rare diseases are are orphaned in many ways, and, uh, and people are not supporting people uh, for cost and so many reasons. You know, it's expensive. It's it's kind of uh, you know numbers are not that much, and you know you could you can keep on listing out the reasons why governments and systems are not supporting rare diseases, but that has to change. So now moving right. on, I want to talk about your work uh, as. Uh, you know, with the foundation, you know, 
I've read that you kind of uh, you're you're on board uh, where uh, there's, there's some some work about universal designing for playgrounds and uh, you know you work with with children teaching them about universal play, playgrounds and and stuff. Yeah, just just talk about your work on that front. Perfect. So uh, yes, yeah, so I am the co-founder and CEO of Rare Ability. And it's an organization that's actually being run by people and, and uh, advocates and uh, fam families of people with rare diseases. And yet it is designed for empowering people of all abilities. Concept being that every single person has an ability or even a rare ability. And so the title actually came from the, my co-founder's uh, advisor for her, for her master's program. But we have the two elements. We have the one side of empowering people with disabilities, and we have the other side of raising awareness within our community. And part of that starts with children. And it starts with going into the classrooms and being active and being uh, engaging and educational to the point of the students will remember the lesson, but they will have fun while learning it. As a STEM educator, my friend Jay is also a STEM educator and also an ally for the rare disease community. And I have kind of combined some of these ideas together. And so one of our programs is to go in and work with children with STEM education. And we've expanded it to include universal playground design and also other types of modalities and programs and projects that help support, give awareness to the challenges in the disease, uh, people with chronic illnesses or disabilities as well as engaging our children so that these become educational moments, but also memorable. And one of our things we have is the playgrounds for the kids. You've been uh, doing a diverse set of activities and uh, on top of it, you have a, a disability and uh, some level of pain to manage all the time. How do you kind of work yourself around these, these layers of work that you do? And uh, uh, you know, you got a family. So how do you, how do you get, get around managing all this? It's a very delicate balance, a struggle, and I'm not always good at it. Uh, and as we sit here, I'm actually getting my infusion treatment. So and part of it is incorporating things together. I have a lot I do on Clubhouse. So if I can't get out of bed, I can, I can be lying in bed and have all of my computer supplies around me, or if I'm crafting the same thing, I can do a lot from bed. I have a recliner in my office area so that I can recline more and not be sitting straight up, which is more likely to lose consciousness from. But it's a balance. It's not an easy balance. And I want to do a whole lot more than what my body wants me to do. So that's always, that's an ongoing battle and struggle for me. Because as I said, I am a parent to two teenagers. I am a scout, a scout, uh, scout leader volunteer. And I, yeah, I also use my own time for my own mindfulness projects, which helps me quite a lot is my creative element is a big part of my mindfulness um, element and release and reset. So it's uh, it's not easy though. I definitely want to do way more than what my body wants me to do. So it's still a struggle, but I do what I can because any little, I look at it this way too, is even if I can't do the top 10 things on my list, if I can get one thing done, or if I can even get part of the way done, and I may not finish it now, but I may be able to finish it later or the next day. So you talk about dynamic goals that leaped out of your your profile. And uh, right. uh, I wanted to ask you what you mean by that and how you think people can incorporate dynamic 
uh, goal setting in their lives? It's actually term my dad and I came up with because I was writing about the goal setting concept and I teach SMART goals. I've taught SMART goal setting, which is specific, measure, measurable, attainable, reasonable timetable goals. And that's a very standard type of leadership style of teaching uh, goal setting. And that's really great. But if you have a chronic illness or if you have other obstacles and challenges in your life, it can be very difficult to have and perform specific goals all the time. The dynamic element is what I, especially for the chronic illness community, I came up with in terms of my dad, the dynamic means can change. So I want people when they create their goals to create dynamic goals in the sense that although it is under the smart umbrella, dynamic in the goal setting in the sense that one's ability may change from moment to moment. And therefore we have to also be willing to change our goals from moment to moment. You might start your day with a list of five or six things. Make sure you have your top three highlighted and you maybe will get through those three things, but reality is something might happen and you might not be able to. So you need to be able to be dynamic and willing to change those goals. And this applies for everybody. It's not just a chronic illness community. And if you're a mom, if you're a parent, if you have multiple jobs or you have, you're a caregiver, you have different elements or continuously changing in your lifestyle. If that's happening, you need to be able to be able to change those goals based on the, what's realistic for you at that moment, not what you think society tells you you should be doing, but what's realistic. But Absolutely. realistic at a time. With your current condition, what are the things that you do or enjoy doing around your house or at work? And what are the issues that you have or challenges that you have? You think you wish to change? Thank you so much. Uh, the things I enjoy doing, I there's quite a lot I enjoy doing besides spending time with my family and my uh, friends and, and for family on Clubhouse as well. But I, I'm a crafter by nature and maker by nature and heart as well. So I like to do things with my hands. If I can figure out a way to make something, I usually will. I many times have to find ways to adapt to create so that I can, my part of my left hand doesn't work. My arm strength is really weak. And at times I have a lot of, I have challenges uh, with my eyes getting really blurry, but I find ways to adapt for what I can do. And I really enjoy being creative and creating for other people as well. So that's one of the things I love to do as well as things digitally wise. I love working with digital arts and programs and videos. And I am soon to be doing a radio show as well as a podcast in the relative near future. So that's something I enjoy quite a bit. Uh, working with kids, I definitely enjoy quite a lot. Spending time with my family. And you know, now that I've been doing this mindfulness work as well as play with my singing bowls and these other elements for bringing mm -hmm. in this okay. energy, I'm loving it. So uh, yeah, that's the thing that I enjoy. Challenges I have, there is quite a bit I have of challenges of weakness and fatigue. And that would be, I would love for them to have more energy and to not be so weak and so much so much challenges with the chronic fatigue and now this would be a fun challenge it's not plausible now but i would love to have a car that could drive me around places so that i do not have to depend on my husband 